The people most persecuted in the world today are Christians. This was stated in a British publication written by a British professor. He quotes from several bodies of data, and I'll read from his article. According to the International Society for Human Rights, a secular group with members in 38 states worldwide, 80% of all religious discrimination in the world today is directed at Christians. The Center for the Study of Global Christianity in the United States estimates that 100,000 Christians now die every year targeted because of their faith. That is 11 every hour. The Pew Research Center says that hostility to religion reached a high in 2012 when Christians faced some form of discrimination in 139 different countries, almost three-quarters of the world. He goes on to say that Christianity is facing elimination in its biblical homeland. Between a half and two-thirds of Christians in the Middle East have departed or been killed over the past century. Now, the Apostle Thomas, one of, one of the twelve, is said to have established the church in the country that is now known as Iraq. And the church in Iraq is considered to be one of the oldest, continuous Christian communities in the world. There are parts of the world where the church was started at that same period of time, but it hasn't been continually in existence in that location as it has in Iraq. In 1990, there were over 1.2 million Christians in Iraq. By the end of 2003, there were fewer than 500,000. In 2013, there were fewer than 200,000 Iraqi Christians. Now, it's not uncommon to hear about churches being attacked or Christians killed or individual believers being arrested and thrown in jail, and the violence is often beyond our comprehension. While this kind of extreme violence rarely happens in the Western world, persecution of people who are committed to following Jesus is on the rise. Princeton professor Robert George has talked about this, and I want you to to listen carefully to his words. And and I'll read a fairly lengthy paragraph, so, so listen carefully. To be a witness to the gospel today is to make oneself a marked man or woman. It is to expose oneself to scorn and reproach. To unashamedly proclaim the gospel in its fullness is to place in jeopardy one's security, one's personal aspirations and ambitions, the peace and tranquility one enjoys, one's standing in polite society. One may, in consequence of one's public witness, be discriminated against and denied educational opportunities and the prestigious, prestigious credentials they may offer. One may lose valuable opportunities for employment and professional advancement. One may be excluded from worldly recognition and honors of various sorts. One's witness may even cost one treasured friendships. It may produce familial discord and even alienation from family members. Yes, there are costs of discipleship. Heavy costs. Here in Canada, Christian professionals in law and medicine have already increasingly faced anti-Christian thinking, especially around issues of human life, abortion and physician-assisted suicide. 
Cameron Pierce, who grew up in our church, was very nearly denied a medical degree from the University of Manitoba Medical School because in a class he said that as a Christian, he would not refer a pregnant woman to a physician who did abortions. He would not tell them not to, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't refer them. Students graduating from Trinity Western Law School, a Christian school, have been threatened with not having their degrees recognized across Canada because the school has a code of conduct that prohibits sexual behavior outside of the biblical boundaries. Now, when many of us were young, and, and we're not the youngest congregation in town, but when many of us were young, uh, in our families, we, we put on our Sunday best on Sunday morning, and, and those were the clothes that we wore only to church. And, and in my family, as soon as we got home, we had to change our clothes and, and keep the Sunday best clean and in good shape. It's actually a very good Old Testament principle. The idea of holiness is certain things are holy because they're dedicated to the service of God. So we had our holy clothing, our Sunday best that we only wore on, on Sundays. And uh, attired in our Sunday best, we headed off to church every week without fail. And so did many of our neighbors. Going to church and believing in the worth of reading the Bible in those days were respectable behavior. You think that going to church every Sunday is still held in high esteem? There are churchgoers who will not put that on their resume for good reason when searching for a job. Now, we have been, culturally speaking, the dominant voice in Western culture for so long that we've been caught off guard by some of these recent changes. We find ourselves being increasingly pushed to the margins and often mocked by the louder media, news, entertainment voices, as being out of step with the times. We are facing persecution. Mercifully, mild compared to that which Christians face in other parts of the world, yet it is clear that things have changed and the rate of change seems to be accelerating. Are we surprised by this? We probably are, but at the same time, we can't say that we weren't warned because Jesus promised us that we would be persecuted. And nowhere more clearly than in today's Gospel reading that Chris read for us a few moments ago. I want you to to look at this and and turn in your Bibles to Matthew 10. It's uh, on page, if you use the Bible in front of you, it's on page 583. Let's think about the context for a minute. Then I want to back up two verses to verse 22. We started at verse 24. I want to back up to verse 22. The context is that Jesus is sending his disciples out on a teaching mission, two by two. And their assignment is thus. Go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, cast out demons, give as freely as you have received. Now, following a set of of detailed instructions about what they should and should not do, Jesus gave them a strong warning, and it's in verse 22. And all nations will hate you, because you were my followers. But everyone who endures to the end will be saved. And what I want to do with you this morning is to look at this gospel reading with an aim of focusing our attention on two essential realities. 
The first is the foundation on which persecution is built, or we might say the reason for persecution. And the second reality that we're going to look at gives us new perspectives on the persecution that we face that enables us to face this with the courage necessary for us to faithfully endure. So let's begin with the foundation or reason for persecution. It's very simple. People hate Jesus, therefore they will hate his disciples. Look at this as Jesus says, Students are not greater than their teacher. Slaves are not greater than their master. Students are to be like their teacher. Slaves are to be like their master. And since I, the master of the household, have been called the prince of demons, the members of my household will be called by even worse names. The reality that Jesus presents to us is that we can expect to be treated as he was treated. The principle is that a disciple is not greater than the teacher. As the teacher is treated, so shall the disciple be treated. Now, the example used here by Jesus amounts to name-calling, simple name-calling, which by comparison with what is happening to many today around the world seems benign and gentle, and yet it isn't. This name-calling betrays the hatred in the hearts of Jesus' accusers, and we see the extent that they went to to put Jesus out of action, his death on the cross. Now, what is this hateful name they call Jesus? First one, Belzebul. That's what they call him, Belzebul. Uh, this is not the normal spelling of the word. The normal spelling is Belzebub that you see below that. Belzebub is the name of an idol or false god worshipped in parts of, of Palestine, and the name simply means the Lord of the Flies, as you see there at the bottom. And thus you often see this picture connected with Belzebub, a fly. The name that the, the, the Hebrews gave to this pagan god was the Lord of the Flies. For the Jews, Belzebub was the prince of demons. However, as we said, this is not quite the name they were calling Jesus. The spelling is slightly changed. They call him Belzebul. This is not Lord of the Flies, but Lord of the Dung, or excrement. We get the feeling that the Lord of the Flies wasn't sufficiently insulting, so they changed it from Lord of the Flies to Lord of the Dung. That's what they call Jesus. Either way, they are clearly identifying Jesus with the prince of demons. In Matthew 12, we read about Jesus setting people free, and the religious leaders claim that he is doing that by the power of the prince of demons. Now, Jesus sums it up by saying that should they dare call Jesus, who is the Lord of all creation, the Lord of the dung, then surely they will call the members of his household far worse names. But the contempt for Jesus didn't stop with name-calling. Of course, it was just simply that hatred that resulted with his death on the cross. The reason Christians will be hated and persecuted is that Jesus was persecuted and hated and crucified. Let's pause for just a moment, though. Have you ever heard someone say, I, I, I know I have, or heard the report of someone saying that they like and admire Jesus a lot as the church they hate? A lot of people say that these days. I suspect that the Jesus they like is the Jesus of their own creation, one who fits the image of what a nice Western 21st century Messiah should be like, maybe like the Jesus on the Newsweek magazine cover in 2012. 
You know, that, that looks like a pleasant Jesus that anybody could get along with. They have a mind of Jesus who wants everyone to feel good and, and who wants to be nice to everybody. I think if they took time to read the gospel reading that we heard this morning and pay attention just to that one little section from Matthew, that they might have a different opinion about this Jesus. Take the last three verses. If you love your father and mother more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. These are either the words of a lunatic, as C.S. Lewis would have said, or the words of God. But they're hard to swallow. Is this the nice Jesus that they think they like? What would they do with these statements? Probably, I, I think I knew, I knew what they would do with these statements. They'd just simply say, well, Jesus, the real Jesus didn't say those things. So that's the first essential fact. Many hate Jesus, and hating him as much as they do explains the irrational hatred they have for the members of his household. Blowing up churches, beheading Christians, denying Christians' jobs, throwing them in prison. I was pretty judicious, I thought, about the slides I chose this morning. There are some brutal depictions of what, have, what has happened to Christians that I thought was not appropriate for a church service. We know where these people in orange are going. We don't have to see the actual images. We shouldn't be surprised that as Christians we are far less popular than we once were and may be headed towards being the enemy. And in fact, in some parts of Canadian culture, we are viewed as the enemy. Jesus clearly predicted coming persecution for every generation of Christians. And along with that, he promised salvation for those who endure to the end. Everyone who endures will be saved. Now, I'm not trying to make persecution sound like a good thing. I am trying to make it sound like an unavoidable thing, because that's what Jesus said. Having to endure persecution is not an attractive idea. It's not something we go looking for. None of us want to be persecuted. The natural response to persecution is fear. And a natural reaction to fear is to fly, to get away, to move away. It's not a bad idea. Jesus seems to acknowledge that when he says, when you're persecuted in one town, flee to another. Jesus said that. But finally, we run out of places to run to. And we have to stand and endure. So this brings us to the second reality. We need a new perspective on persecution. One that helps us find the courage to endure to the end. It takes courage to endure. Jesus knew that. And he said to the disciples and to us, Do not be afraid of those who threaten you. Now, everyone who's been around for a while knows that telling someone who's smitten by fear to simply stop being afraid is accomplishing very little. It doesn't work. You say to a young child, Don't be afraid. It it doesn't usually help. What we have to do is help them see their circumstances in a different light. We have to help them change their perspective in order to get past their fear. We need to give them some new information. And Jesus does precisely that. Three times in this passage, he tells us not to be afraid. Three times he gives us a new perspective, new information about persecution so that we can see it in a new way. 
Now, Jesus knows fully the pain of persecution more than any other person who's ever lived. And he knows well our need for courage. Now, he shows us in these verses three ways of looking at persecution and dealing with our fears, three new perspectives, if you will. Look at verse 26. Don't be afraid of those who threaten you, for the time is coming when everything that is covered will be revealed, and all that is secret will be made known to all. What I tell you now in the darkness, shout abroad when daybreak comes. What I whisper in your ears, shout from the housetops for all to hear. What does this have to do with persecution? Persecution that Jesus experienced took the form of a lie. They called the Lord of all creation the Lord of the dung. And they called him the Prince of Demons. Lies are weapons that are used to injure and to destroy. To destroy reputations, to destroy lives. In persecution today, Christians are falsely accused as they seek to follow Jesus. Our seeking to hold and to follow biblical principles and teaching about how people should live is a basis for some people to call us bigots, to call us haters, to call us prejudiced. But the lies won't hold, Jesus says. Truth does win. That which is hidden is revealed. That which is secret becomes known. When Jesus restores all things, then the truth will win. So Jesus says, don't worry about the lies. They will hurt. They will destroy. But don't worry. They're lies, and the truth will win in the end. Everything that is covered will be revealed. All that is secret will be made known. Then Jesus offers a, a second new perspective on persecution, seen in verse 28. Look at that one. Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God. Fear only God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Death is not the end. Jesus speaks very bluntly to say to us that death is not the worst thing that happens to us. To paraphrase it, we hear Jesus saying, the worst they can do to you does not match the worst that God can do to you. Now, it's easy for us to focus on the worst that they can do to us. We see it on the news almost every day. It's only in Scripture that we hear Jesus saying, only God can destroy body and soul in hell. Now, He's basically saying, don't fear those who can only kill you. Rather, fear the one who one day will be your judge with the power to consign you to hell. Now, the word Jesus used here is, is not the word usually translated as hell. It's the word Gehenna. In those days, now this is a picture of modern Jerusalem, as you see it up here. But in those days, in Jerusalem, there's a valley. Here it's circled. The valley's still there. The city's changed, obviously, but the valley's still there. It was the valley belonging to the sons of Hinnon. So it took on the name Gehenna eventually. And it was the garbage dump. And in that valley, they would de deposit dead bodies, uh, the, the bodies of animals, the dead bodies of criminals, and, and all sorts of other garbage. 
But it has a much darker history than that. In the days of the kings, in those days, some people went there to that valley to offer their children as a burnt offering to the god Moloch. This is an old artistic rendition of what that might have looked like. There is, you see, this big god, a statue, who is accepting these children to be burned as an offering. It was a horrible thing and a despicable thing for the Israelites to do. I don't know if some of you read the Babylon Bee. Do you? Does anybody? Do you know it? Some of you were laughing. It's a satirical newspaper done by a Manitoban out of Steinbeck, I believe. It's, it's kind of a Mennonite thing. And uh, here's, here's a recent Babylon Bee article. President Obama nominates Canaanite god Moloch to Supreme Court. So it looks like the character in the other picture. And the White House spokesman goes on to state, while any of the gods who demanded child sacrifice would have been impeccable candidates to steer the court's decisions on key issues like abortion, Moloch's consistent track record of obliterating society's offspring gave him the edge. A little bit of satire and, and fun. But it was a horrible thing. Now, by the time Jesus was speaking, that had stopped. That did not go past the Babylonian exile, but the valley was now a garbage dump. And it was always burning. And therefore, it became a metaphor for eternal punishment and suffering, everlasting destruction. Jesus literally says, fear him who can throw you into the garbage dump for eternity. Now you're sitting there thinking, how is this encouraging? This isn't encouraging at all. Well, we have to move on to the third statement to see how this is encouraging, because Jesus doesn't stop there. We need to hear what he says and not dismiss it, but we also need to keep reading. Verse 29 what is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than the whole flock of sparrows. The first point that is encouraging, don't worry about the people who can kill you. They can only kill you. That's all they can do. No big deal. But God loves you, and knows you better than you could ever dream or imagine, and you are more valuable to him than you'll ever know. Our God is like the Father depicted in Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son with his arms around us. Facing persecution is made more endurable as we remind ourselves that we're held in the powerful, loving arms of God. And it's this reality that can help us conquer our fears. George W. Robinson, an Irish clergyman, wrote a hymn, and, and we really know very little about him and almost nothing about the hymn, but that hymn took me through a really difficult time in the 1980s. It wasn't a time of persecution exactly, but it was a deep, dark time. And this hymn, which I often recited from memory, helped carry me through. It's got two different titles. One is Loved with Everlasting Love, or the other title is I Am His and He is Mine. And this verse fits this perspective of, of how we see God. 
things that once were wild alarms, cannot now disturb my rest. Closed in everlasting arms, pillowed on the loving breast. Oh, to lie forever here, doubt and care and self-resign. While he whispers in my ear, I am his and he is mine. He knows me. The very hairs of my head are numbered by him and he loves me. Why would I fear persecution when I have this God embracing me? Now, what does Jesus want from us in the midst of persecution? Uh, What defines faithfulness to him? Look at verse 32. It's very simple. Everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. This is St. Stephen as he's being martyred, as he's being killed. What was he doing as he was dying? He was acknowledging that Jesus was his Lord and pointing attention to him not even to what was happening to himself as he was being stoned, but pointing attention to Jesus. To acknowledge Jesus is to confess that I belong to him. He is my Lord, and I am loyal to him above all others, and it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks, I will not move off from that point. Now, as I close, persecution isn't new. Think back to the book of Daniel. Three young Hebrew men faced persecution because of their loyalty to God. This landed them in the middle of a furnace that should have killed them instantly. Instead, they were not touched by the flame nor the heat and were joined by a fourth person who we see in this painting. Their faithful endurance in the face of this persecution is underscored in their own words. And this is what Jesus wants from us. O Nebuchadnezzar, We do not need to defend ourselves before you if we are thrown into the blazing furnace. The God of whom we serve, the God whom we serve, is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. May God grant us the courage to follow Jesus, even in the face of persecution, and say, He is our God, no matter what anyone else says or what they ask us to do.